today we are going to start a hold that for me. Thank you. Today we're going to start a new chapter in the Bhagavatam. This is the uh, fourth canto, chapter 17. Maharaj Prithu becomes angry at the earth. So, Prabhupada's translation, the great sage Maitreya continued in this way. The reciters who were glorifying Maharaj Prithu readily described his qualities and chivalrous activities. At the end, Maharaj Prithu offered them various presentations with all due respect and worshipped them adequately. There's no purport for this verse. Uh, in fact, there's no purport for the next three verses. So, uh, let's take a look here. Maitreya Uvacha, Maitreya said, Maitreya, of course, means the son of Mitra. Avam thus. So when a chapter begins, or any sentence begins with the word Avam thus, it's referring to what just happened. Same as in English. When you say thus, you're concluding something that you said earlier. So Avam here thus refers to the previous chapter where the sages glorified uh, Prithu Maharaj. who's called uh, Vainya here because he was the son of Vaina. So, he's called uh, Vainya, son of Vaina. It's interesting because Vaina, of course, was a, a complete villain. He was demonic, and yet still, that was his father. So he's called Vainya which is sort of an interesting little cultural touch there. <laughs> You'd think that, you know, you could imagine a culture in which you don't want to talk about that, <laughs> who his father was, but here he's called Vanya. So even thus, Salvagavan, he the Lord, Vanya, Capito, uh, Capito is uh, described, Prabhupada here puts glorified, Kya means to narrate, like Akhyana means a narration. And this is the uh, causative, past passive participle, which means literally that he was caused to be described. In other words, he was, he was glorified, he was described. He was described, guna karma bhi, uh, according to his qualities, guna. The word guna in Sanskrit can mean the material qualities, goodness, passion, and ignorance, but in a more general sense, it can simply mean a quality. And as in English, you could say someone has good qualities or bad qualities, but if you just say this person has qualities, it tends to mean good It tends to mean good qualities. If you just use the word guna by itself, it tends to mean, and same in Sanskrit. So for example, it's very common antonyms, opposite words in Sanskrit are guna and dosha, which means a good quality and a bad quality, or a virtue and default. Guna dosha, you find that, uh, throughout our literature. So here it simply says uh, he was described in terms of his qualities and that means his good qualities. It doesn't mean in terms of the modes of nature, which is a special use of the word guna. And karma, be his actions. Again, the word karma from the Sanskrit root kur, or as devotees pronounce it, kri, and we still have words in English from that Sanskrit root, words like create, or increase are actually from the Sanskrit verb to do or to make, create. So here, karma literally means action. And uh, in other words, something you do intentionally. That's an action. Uh, so here, Krishna, Lord Prithu is glorified in terms of his qualities and his actions. Again, just like guna can have a special meaning in terms of the modes of nature, karma takes on a special meaning in terms of the reactions to your previous activities, but in a larger sense, it simply means action or activity. And Krishna uses the word himself that way. For example, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Evam, what has Krishna said? Um, God. I can't believe I forgot that verse. I hope this is not age related. Um, 
Krishna says, one who understands my uh, actions, birth, janma karma chame divyam. Janma karma chame divyam. So what Krishna says, that one who even jyoveti tattvataha, one who understands literally categorically tattvataha, in truth. In other words, not thinking that Krishna's body is material, not thinking that Krishna's material, not thinking that Krishna is a jiva. These are the three basic tattvas, the three fundamental categories of reality, which are um, the soul, jiva. Therefore, we say jiva tattva. We say jiva tattva because tattva here means a fundamental category, a real thing. I've explained this many times before, may I'll do it one more time at no extra cost to you. Uh, the Sanskrit word tat, if you just add an, an H after the T, it's English, that, it's the same word. English just added an H so you could bite your tongue when you say it, that, some strange reason. But anyway, tat means that, and that is a demonstrative pronoun. It means it's, it's a word that points out something like which house, that house, which person, that person. And so the word that is used to demonstrate, to point out something. Therefore, it's a demonstrative pronoun. And, uh, and in philosophical Sanskrit, where they put great value on brevity of speech, the more you can say in the fewest possible words, uh, the bigger a prize you get. And we find this even, for example, in modern physics looking for a simple equation that explains all equations. And so um, tat, because it points out something, comes to mean in philosophical Sanskrit, a real thing. And since all real things ultimately owe their existence to one supreme real thing, therefore tat comes to mean the absolute truth. That's kind of the logic, as in, for example, om tat sat. So that's the word tat. And uh, if you add the little suffix twa, twa is something like the English suffix ty, which is probably related to Sanskrit. So for example, if someone is generous, they have generosity. And so generosity is the quality of being generous. Or what's another one? Humanous. Huh? No, that ends in ty. What? Humanity, yes. Yeah, the, the, being human in the sense of empathetic to other humans is humanity. The quality of being sort of an empathetic human. So uh, religiosity, the quality of being religious is religiosity. So we have T-Y, Sanskrit, Twang, and uh, anyway, won't go into all the grammar here, but Therefore, tatwa means the quality or the state of being a real thing. Tatwa, the state or the quality of being a real demonstrable object in the world. That's tatwa. Tatwa is usually translated as truth, but it means truth in a special sense. It means categorical truth because, for example, jiva tatwa. That means the jiva, the jiva as a category, not just one or another jiva, not you or me, but the category of jiva as a fundamental category of real things. Or Vishnu tattva, same thing, that Vishnu uh, stands here for a category of fundamental real things, namely uh, plenary manifestations of God, or Prakriti tattva. So that's what, the, and, and therefore when Krishna in, the, in that famous verse in Bhagavad Gita where he says, uh, it's translated, uh, learn the truth by approaching a spiritual master. Literally, Krishna says, tad vidhi, again, tad, know that. Vidhi is just the imperative of the verb to know, vid, veda. And so vidhi means know, it's the command, know. So Krishna says, tad vidhi, know that, meaning know that truth. Uh, tad vidhi and so on. And then he says, uh, that um, is just the, I know you all love grammar. Upadekshanti is the plural future tense 
of the verb to instruct. That's an upadeshamrita. Upadesha means instruction, right? Nectar of instruction. So they will instruct. Upadekshanti simply means they will instruct. And so here's actually plural that know this truth uh, because they, jnaninas, those who have knowledge will give you knowledge. It's sort of a, you could say it's tautological, but it's, but it's an interesting point. Krishna puts these two words, jnanino and jnanam together. So he says, upadekshantite jnanam jnaninas. He's making a point just simply by the syntax. In other words, the word order, because in Sanskrit, you have much more freedom than in English to change the word order because you know what, what's the subject and what's the object of the sentence, not by the word order, but rather by the endings. Anyway, it's an inflected language. So, so the fact that there is this freedom of word order in Sanskrit much more than English, the fact that Krishna puts these two words together uh, he's making a point. He's saying that people who have knowledge can give you knowledge. Someone can't give you knowledge if they don't have it. <laughs> and and that's, it's a simple but powerful point. Upadekshanti, they will teach jnanam, knowledge, jnaninas, those who have knowledge. And he said, he calls these people these people who will teach you knowledge are tatva darshina, seers of the truth, it's translated. But again, technically, Krishna says seers of tatva. Seers of tatva. And so what does it mean to be a seer of tatva? It means to be a seer. And by seeing, that's how Krishna usually says, like, you've realized it. Not just something you learned in a book and you can pass a test but you really understood it deeply. You've seen it. You've seen the truth. And so um, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna often uses the word, different words for seeing as a synonym for knowing. When you really see something, then you really know it. That's uh, throughout the Gita. So what does it mean to be a seer of tattva? Uh For one thing, it means that you see the fundamental categories of reality. You see, for example, if you think Krishna has a material body, then that is a tattva mistake. It's a category mistake. You're confusing Ishwara or Vishnu tattva with Prakriti tattva. Or if you think Krishna is an ordinary living being, another category mistake. In other words, a tattva mistake, you're confusing uh, Jiva and Vishnu. Or if you think I am my body, it's another category mistake. You're confusing Jiva and Prakriti. So to be tattva darshi, to see tattva, as Krishna says in the Gita, means you are very clear on the fundamental categories of reality. And that's the sense also in the famous Bhagavatam verse, Vedanti Tattva Vidas, and so on. So um, now there's a word which means someone that cannot make accurate distinctions, who cannot identify the different tattvas. There's a word for it, which is nirvishesha. Perhaps if, if, if you, Hare Krishna, if you sat maybe a little bit on that side, then you could still hear the class and, yeah, I mean, we want you to hear the class, but if you just sat a little bit over there outside, then uh, you can hear me, but I can't hear if I couldn't a child. So, yeah, right there, I don't, it doesn't have to go so far. If she just stops right there, she can still hear the class. So, um, vishesha in Sanskrit means a distinction. So, for example, the word visheshana means an adjective. Because an adjective is a word that distinguishes nouns. Like, for example, uh, person. Which person? I guess that's infantile primal screen therapy. Anyway, so, so, 
So, for example, if you say which person, if you say the old person, the young person, the uh, this person, that person, so adjectives distinguish the red house, the blue house. And so the word for adjective in Sanskrit is visheshana, in Sanskrit grammar. So vishesha means the same thing, of course. So near vishesha means someone who cannot distinguish. And what can they not distinguish? They can't distinguish the tattvas. They can't distinguish the tattvas. They are confused about jiva, Vishnu, and Prakriti, or God, the soul, and nature. So that's actually what it means when said the Prabhupada is saving the Western countries from those who cannot understand what the tattvas continue avoid us. So so getting back to this verse, um, Krishna himself says that his karma is divine. Janma, my birth, Janma, karma, cha, me, my divyam, my divine birth and action. So again, the word karma in, a, in the most simple, general sense, simply means action. And then in a special sense, it means reactions to your previous activities. That's why here in this verse, it said, Kyapito Guna Karma B, that Prithu is glorified by his qualities and actions. Not meaning by his modes of nature and his karma, but by simply by his qualities and actions. And then Chandiyamasa Tam Kamai, which in Sanskrit means that uh, he satisfied them, he satisfied them, uh, Chandiyamasa, I won't go into all the grammar here, so, but anyway, he satisfied them, uh, Kamai, with wishes. Here's another word, we have a third word here, which has a special meaning and a general meaning. Kama has a special meaning of lust, or sex desire, or selfish desire, but the word kama has a more general meaning. It simply means desire or wish. For example, if you have the word desire, and then if you make the uh, past participle desired, that word is kanta. Kanta is just the past participle of kama. And so it's used to describe Krishna. Krishna is gopi kanta. He's the one who's desired by the gopis. Or uh, there's so many words, names for Krishna ending in kanta. Rata Kanta, yes, and uh, and so on. So in that sense, Kanta again, just the past participle of Kama, simply means desire. He's the desire of Radha, the desire of the Gopis, and so on. And so here, the word Kama, Kamai, which is, just means by the desires, um, it means in a general sense, not in the special sense of sex desire or uh, selfish desire in general. And so therefore, it means that Prithu satisfied them and literally fulfilled their desires by granting their wishes. Kamai, by granting their wishes. And uh, Pratipuja. Uh, puj means to honor. In Sanskrit, it's a verb. Sometimes there's a sort of an urban legend in Sanskrit that puj means something else in some or another modern Indian language, but actually in Sanskrit it doesn't. That's the verb puj. And uh, it means to worship, but it also means to honor. In fact, Prabhupada here translates it off in all respects. So in the Western world, the same English, the word worship is a word which is often reserved or people think it's appropriate to reserve it for God. You don't worship human beings. You don't worship even other souls, you worship God. And so sometimes they may object to the fact, or for example, we have Guru Puja. Uh, what I explain to people is that the word Puja does not simply mean worship, it means honor. So if you wanted to say in Sanskrit, honor your father and mother, which is one of the Ten Commandments, this is the word you would use. There are other words, but you could very much use this word. For example, when uh, people in these traditional Indians, Hindus, when they write letters to their, say to their father, they write puja pita, isn't it? That's like a common thing, puja pita. It doesn't mean, it can mean worshipful, but it simply means like honorable father. 
Puja literally means or, or honorable, honorable father. And so um, here, Prati, Prati in Sanskrit, you see that there? Follow the bouncing chakra. Prati means um, counter or reverse. So Prati Puja means honoring return. They honored him and he returned the honors. In other words, he sent the honors back in the opposite direction. And that's what Prati means, Prati Puja. He honored them in return. Uh, for example, the uh, fifth uh, stage of Ashtanga Yoga is uh, Prati Ahara. Because Ahara means sense activities, like engaging the senses with their objects. And then Prati means you pull the senses back in the opposite direction, you pull them within. So that's, that's the word. It also means other things. It can mean also each, like each step, like what does Lord Chaitanya said? Pratipadam purnamritas. So pratipadam means at every step. So these are, I mean, they're the word, this, it's a prefix, prati. It has various meanings. Uh, one common meaning is counter and reverse going the opposite way, as in pratyahara or pratipuja. It can also mean each, like pratipadam at each step. Anyway, that's what it says. So, Chandya Masa Tan Kamai Pratipuja Abhinandya Cha. Abhinandya here is translated offering prayers. Nand, Nand is a, an important Sanskrit verb. That's the root Nand. The Sanskrit language was always conceived of by ancient grammarians as uh, beginning from roots. That the idea is that every Sanskrit word sort of grows out of a root sort of an organic botanical image of language, that there are roots and there are stems and then there are, and so on. So we talk about verbal roots, which are roots in the sense of all the words grow out of those roots. So the root nand, the word nand means to take pleasure, give pleasure. And if you add the prefix ah, which intensifies the sense, you have ananda. That's where you get the word ananda which means intense pleasure or bliss. And uh, also this root nand pleasure is taken to be an abbreviation of nand would be na as in Krishna. And so when it's said that Krishna means all attractive because Krish means to attract in Sanskrit. Interesting. And if you think you don't mind a little etymology, do you? I mean, after all, you are in the Hare Krishna movement. I thought you might be interested to know where all this stuff comes from. So why does, why does the word, why does Krish in Krishna mean attractive or all attractive and Krishi in the same root means plowing? There's a very obvious answer, right? Because think of the relationship between the two English words, traction and attraction. <laughs> traction means plowing, like a tractor, means pulling something. So that's what traction is, pulling, something that's traction, so pulling. So because the ox pulled the plow or the tractor pulls the plow, that's traction. And if something pulls the mind, that's attraction. So that's why Krish means attractive because attractive or just attractive means something that has traction. So that's why the same word means attractive or all attractive and, and plowing. Like a magnet. What? Like a magnet. Not as, yeah, like a magnet would be a case, but, but uh, yes, like a magnet. Traction, attraction. So, um, so na, so krish means attracting, and na is taken as an abbreviation of na, this verb na, which means to give pleasure or take pleasure. So. Krishna is the source of pleasure and Krishna is the all attractive one. Anyway, so Abhinandya, Abhi, Abhi means uh, toward, it can mean against something or toward it. And uh, Abhinandya means directing pleasure to them. In other words, Prabhupada translates here offering prayers. The idea is that pleasing them. In this case, Prabhupada takes it to mean by prayers, but that's what Nand literally means, that he directed happiness toward them in a sense, which can mean celebrating someone, rejoicing, or, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's Abhinandya. So there's a sense here, not merely offering prayers, 
but actually giving them pleasure, pleasing them, satisfying them, which can be by appropriate prayers. So that's the verse. Uh, that was a word for word, by the way. Maitre uvacha evam sab bhavan vainya kyapito guna karma vi chandiyamasa tam kamai pratipuja vinantyacha. So here, I'll just say a few words. Most of the class, of course, will be word for word, but say a few words that here we see Vedic culture in action because we see a relationship between a political leader and uh, spiritual or religious leaders. And we see the relationship is working very well. There is great mutual benefit, not only for the individuals concerned, but for the world in general. Now, it didn't always go this smoothly. We may think that long ago, Brahmins and Kshatriyas always loved each other and cooperated, and sometimes they didn't, sometimes they didn't. And it's the Mahabharata itself, and even the Bhagavatam, that gives us examples when the relationship breaks down. So uh, one uh, unforgettable example is when the Kshatriya Kshatriyas killed Parashuram's uh, father, and then Parashuram, as a Brahmin, killed all the Kshatriyas. So that's not uh, the Varna system working optimally when Brahmins and Kshatriyas are killing each other. And this is not the only case. In Mahabharata, uh, we have examples. For example, there was a, uh, a sage called Orva from the Sanskrit word Uru, which means thigh, because there was a time when, according to the Mahabharata, this is the story anyway, that um, the Brahmins were hoarding wealth. And they were hoarding wealth at a time when uh, the country, this particular country was, had a fa uh, perhaps a drought, usually poverty in, in pre-industrial societies caused by drought. Of course, it can also be caused by military catastrophe and so on. But any case, uh, there was uh, poverty, people were suffering, and the Kshatriyas discovered that the Brahmins were hoarding wealth. And um, therefore, the Kshatriyas went and massacred them. And um, so again, this is uh, the Varna system, a uh, little glitch here. And so one Brahmana lady, Brahmani, Uru, uh, uh, one Brahmana lady hid her little child, her son, in her thigh, and therefore he became Orva from the word Uru, thigh. Of course, the Bhagavatam gives an ex explanation to exonerate the Brahmins, and they said that the Brahmins had performed so many pious activities, that they had such incredible longevity, they're going to live so long, they're anxious to go to higher planets, and suicide is sinful, so they arranged for the Kshatriyas to kill them, which is an interesting interpretation. And it certainly makes the Brahmins look good. Anyway, so I give this as an example of sometimes the system not working so well. And there are cases where, like in the case of Sudasa, the king, where his guru cursed him, he counter-cursed his guru, they both got reactions. Again, system's breaking down. And of course, we have many, many, many examples where the system works very well. So why should the system break down? Because the, um, the Brahmins and Kshatriyas are uh, the two highest social orders and power corrupts. Power corrupts. So for, and, and you can see there's sort of, even if you just look at the language of Shastra, there's kind of a built-in tension because you say one class is the Rishis, the Brahmins, the other class is the kings, the Rajas, but then there's the Rajarshi. And so, in fact, if you look at about two and a half thousand years ago, the spread of Buddhism and Jainism, Jainism, by the way, at one point was just as powerful as Buddhism in the world. Buddhism continued to grow and Jainism shrunk, but if you go back a couple thousand years, they were both very powerful in India. And... Um, they were both, these movements were both inaugurated and spread by, by Kshatriyas, who were just sick and tired of, of, of Brahmins lording it over them. And so 
you have a time two and a half thousand years ago where the Brahmins have become oppressive, uh, sort of uh, misusing their religious and spiritual power, well, more religious in this case. And therefore you have a Kshatriya revolt, which actually takes the form of two new religions. So, and then of course you have kings because kings were educated, kings were taught the Vedas, and therefore you can have a Rajarshi who says like, well, I'm a Rishi, we don't need, why should I share power with Brahma? Because I'm also a sage. And you can have Brahmins who develop all these mystic powers by their meditation, by their yoga, and they say, well, who needs Kshatriyas? You know, we can, we can do it ourselves. And so, again, a lot of the time, the system was working well, as we see here. So what we see here, Brahmins and Kshatriyas cooperating, this was not a rare event. This was often the case. But also, there are many examples in Shastra where the system breaks down and the two most powerful classes turn against each other. And obviously those uh, examples are given as a warning, as a warning of, of bad things that actually happen in this world. So therefore, I, 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 you know, I'm pointing out, here we have an exemplary case of Brahmana Kshatriya cooperation and mutual appreciation, but it's not something that always happened. And so there, and, and which makes this particular case uh, impressive. In fact, we need look no farther than Prithu's own father to see a Kshatriya who enslaved the Brahmanas or, or wanted to enslave them. And that wasn't the only case of kings trying to turn sages into their servants. There are other cases. There was a famous king, I think his name is Nahusha, who had Brahman sages carry his palanquin. And of course, he, uh, he got a very nasty reaction. He got, an, he, was, he was actually, they got rid of him and they put him, his next life was one you wouldn't want for yourself. So, but again, there are these many cases of the Brahman Kshatriya orders turning against each other. And, and, so, and so therefore, when we hear about uh, Prithu and the, and the sages, you shouldn't think, well, of course, that's just normal Vedic culture. Well, it is, but it's also something which deserves our appreciation because it, it's not automatic and it didn't happen all the time. So that's... Uh, important point. Anyway, any questions on all this? Yes? As far as linguistics are concerned, I understand that language evolved. Did Sanskrit or does Sanskrit also evolve over the Well, first of all, the Sanskrit literature, Shastra, practically never speaks about itself as a language. For example, there's no verse anywhere in Shastra that says that Sanskrita Adibhasha or something. Sanskrit is the original language. What the word Sanskrita, Sanskrit literally means, it's actually the same word as Sanskara. It's just a different word. Sanskara is a noun and uh, Sanskrita is just a participle, but it's the past participle, it's the same word. And Prabhupada always translated Sanskara as reformatory. Reforming, uh, perhaps another word which is perhaps more clear is refining. Refining. So reform, refining, literally reforming, like refining, bringing something to a better form. And so Sanskrita is a refined language. It's, it's a language. Thank you. It's a language which it has been refined, which has been developed, a sophisticated language. And so you could take this to mean that it's a it's refining of what? Like was there a previous language which was crude and now it's been refined? So my late godbrother Gopi Pranadana, who worked with me on the Bhagavatam translation, he he once mentioned uh, I thought that was a very intelligent point that if you look at Krishna, 
when Krishna comes to this world, in fact, all of Krishna's avatars in various forms, Krishna inserts himself into an already existing genealogy, family line. So, of course, Krishna is the original person. He exists before the universe and he creates the universe. But when he appears in this world, he inserts himself within a family. So he has father, uh, you know, parents, grandparents, great grandparents, and going back thousands of generations. And yet he's Adi Purusha, he's the original person. And so, um, in that sense, uh, Gopi Pranadana said that, well, perhaps Sanskrit, like that, is an original language. However, it appears within a language family, just as Krishna appears within a family. I thought that was really smart. So, in any case, ultimately, we do know also that Sanskrit changes over time. So, if you look at what is called Vedic Sanskrit, by the way, the uh, the Shastra, the Bhagavatam uses the word Veda the way the modern scholars do. We often use the word Vedic to mean the whole culture, like, uh, but actually the, uh, the Bhagavatam uses it the way modern scholars do to mean Shruti literature. Shruti literature. And so if you look at, and then in the sense of Shruti and Shruti. So it's, you can use it both ways, but when, but when we say Vedic grammar, and there actually you can get a book of Vedic grammar because it's an older form of Sanskrit. And then what you, what's called classical Sanskrit, which is Mahavarata, Bhagavatam, and so on. Although the Bhagavatam, by the way, which is considered one of the most linguistically sophisticated Sanskrit literatures, it's known for that. And uh, so it has some older forms, but just to give you, just to give an example of a few differences between Vedic Sanskrit and classical Sanskrit, uh, there are words in Vedic Sanskrit and no one really knows what they mean because they're not used anymore. They're archaic. They're... So the vocabulary of, the, let's say, the Rig Veda contains words that uh, are no, were no longer used in classical Sanskrit and so therefore we can only speculate about what they meant. Another example, common example, is that in Sanskrit, Hope you don't mind me explaining all this. After all, you did voluntarily join the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> so, another example is um, Sanskrit, and this is something which we still have in English, by the way, changes the meanings of words by adding prefixes. So, for example, the Sanskrit verb, verbal root vart means to turn. And so you can say, for example, pra, and then from that root, you get the word vritti. So you can say prabritti, which means to turn or to funk, to go forward, like you, things you actually do. Prabritti mark means you engage your senses. Like if you have sex desire, you get married. That's a typical example. And then nivritti means that you turn away. Like you, so prabritti means literally you turn towards something, you engage it. Nivriti means you turn away from it. So in the Nivriti mark, if you have sex desire, you, you somehow control it and, and, and renounce. And so which one is appropriate just depends on your nature. But they're both spiritual paths. So you can say Pravriti or Pravartate, the verb, or Nivartate. Or you can say Anuvartate, which means to turn along or to follow someone. So anubritti means to follow. Anubritti also means translation because it follows the literal sense of the original. So anyway, you have all these prefixes. Anubritti, prabritti, or praverti, anubritti, uh, and so abibritti, like the abivartika cloud. So you can put all these, there, sambritti, vibritti, sung together, vi apart. So all these different prefixes have different meanings. Now, now English not only still retains that, by the way, but it even has that verb. I chose that verb, vert, because we still have it in English as vert, as invert, 
revert, pervert, subvert, introvert, extrovert. It's the same Sanskrit verb, vert. In fact, they pronounce the same. And English, so in retaining the English, in retaining the Sanskrit stem, vert, which is English, vert, <coughs> um, that's an example of, of, of the same word coming, but there's also something in grammar which is structural, or they call it morphology, where English may not retain like anu or abhi, but retains the same structure. So we have this English stem vert, vert, and then we add prefixes to it to change the meaning. Invert, revert, subvert, pervert, extrovert, and so on. So the English, the connection between English and Sanskrit is not only that some words sound the same, like in Sanskrit, if you want to say brother, you say brother. Actually, in Sanskrit, you wouldn't say oh, Mataji. Uh, that's actually Hindi. If you wanted to say it in Sanskrit, you would say Matar. So, so not only the words sound the same because they're coming from the same source, but even the structure. So I forgot how, how what was I talking? About? I got into all that, but. Um, yeah, so, okay, here's the point. Thank you. So in Vedic Sanskrit, earlier Sanskrit, such as the Rig Veda and other literatures, prefixes and, and the word they modify can be separate. Like in English, you can say that, uh, let's say, into the great house I went. So into is like a, you know, a preposition. You can separate it from went. In later classical Sanskrit, you kind of put them together. You don't separate them. So you, let's say you were saying uh, uh, anugachati, which means to follow. Gachati means he goes, he or she goes, and anu means along, like to follow. So in, in, in classical Sanskrit, you'd always say anugachati, whereas in earlier Sanskrit, you could say anu sa da 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 gachati. So you can separate the prefixes and, and, and the verbs of the nouns, and that's done all the time. There are verb cases, Sanskrit, Vedic, you can see how things are, classical Sanskrit, which is considered perhaps the most difficult language to learn, is actually a simplification of Vedic Sanskrit. Because in Vedic Sanskrit, you have other verb tenses, which are not used anymore in, San, in classical Sanskrit. Like there's a subjunctive, to give an example, their, their English subjunctive isn't used very much anymore. It's used a lot in Latin languages like Spanish, of course. But for example, you would say in English, he goes, right? He goes. But the subjunctive would be, I want that he go. It's important that he go. Of course, people that don't do fancy English might say, it's important that he goes. That's an example how the English subjunctive is, is kind of vanishing, but originally in the more complex form of English, it's important that he go. It's important that he see how important this is. And so Sanskrit has a subjunctive case, which is which drops out in classical Sanskrit. It also has other cases such as, um, which scholars are still trying to figure out exactly what they mean. So, so there's all these sophisticated verb tenses which drop out. So in many ways, either in terms of verb tenses, in terms of the, you know, the structure, the formation of words with prepositions, in terms of vocabulary, uh, there are differences. Just like, for example, you can look at, if you read Shakespearean English, or let's say the, the English of the, let's say the 19th century, Jane Austen or Charles Dickens, or, if, or modern English, and now the newer generations are very happily reducing English to like sort of like a vocabulary of uh, 33 words, you know. <laughs> of course, you don't really need to do, you no, know, two. One starts with an S, the other starts with an F. And those two words you can use to express most things you want to say in English. Tweeting also and texting is helping to uh, develop our language. Yes. Like in German, it's going, 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Gehen in German is English go, that Sanskrit go. It's the same word, yes. So, yes. Well, you, that was a big dose of grammar. You're probably going to need a big breakfast now. Or, uh, <laughs> yes. What's the root of the what? Jane. A person named Jinnah. The teaching is basically there's an eternal soul, but there's no God. And you renounce the world and uh, it has, I mean, it's nice because they're the super nonviolent people. They wear masks, they won't breathe bugs in and all that. And so, you know, they're nice. They're nice people. And um, yeah soul but no god they have this weird thing where i don't want to criticize them they're nice people but um they have this philosophy that when you eat food you get karma because inevitably involves either disturbing or killing some life form even vegetarian food so what the sages do is they never cook they let the grihastas literally eat you know cook get all the karma and they eat the food karma free so that's the sign of a <laughs> sign of a true saint, he dumps his miserable karma on the householders, right? <laughs> Admirable. It's funny because in South India they were called Ambara in Sanskrit uh, can mean dress or clothes. That's why Balaram Nila means blue, so Balaram's called Nilambara, which means he wears blue clothes. And so and dig ambara, dig means the directions or like just the air. And so they had they would go naked the uh james sage in the in south india i guess because it's so hot down there everyone goes half naked anyway <laughs> i mean at least back in ancient times so um <laughs> so in south india they were called digambara like dressed by the directions which is a sort of a polite <laughs> way of, it's a polite way of saying naked in sanskrit Whereas in North India, you couldn't do that. Like, hey, dude, you're naked. So, so in North India, they became Shwetambara. Shweta means white, like Shweta Dweep, the white island. So they'd wear white clothes. And so they actually, it's funny. They actually, I mean, you can see, believe it or not. I mean, if you're in the Hare Krishna movement, uh, you probably will find this very hard to understand. But people claiming to be very spiritual can take outer dress really seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard for you to grasp that, <laughs> but but in in the in the Jain tradition, they actually there was actually a schism over like you know the the direction dress and the white dress people. So, but again, they're nice people, and they generally tend to be rich. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, they tend to be rich for, for the same reason that you find a. Uh, in the Western world, traditionally a wealthy Jewish community. And that not because the Jewish people went naked, but because but because the Jains, with all these severe rules about not disturbing the environment, they couldn't farm. Because when you farm, it's just like, you know, it's just like a massacre of bugs and worms, and it's just, you know, it's when you just pull a plow through a field, all kinds of stuff happens. And they couldn't do that. And they lived in an agrarian society where the basis of wealth was land. And so therefore they went into other things like, you know, trade. Because Krishna does say that the vices do, um, Krishna, go, they do either agriculture, cow protection, which they didn't want to do also because it involves all kinds of stuff where you got to like kill bugs around the cows and everything. And so they didn't want to do farming, didn't do cow protection. So what's left? Banija, trade. So they did trade and they became really good at it. And so the same thing, that's India where, which is was more civilized. If you look at Europe historically, because of uh, violent, I mean, violent, murderous anti-Semitism, Jews were not allowed to own land. They couldn't do farming. They couldn't go into many professions. And so therefore, and, and there was something in the Bible about you can't charge interest. You know, if you loan money, you can't charge interest. It's called usury. And so who wants to loan it? Who wants to loan money if you can't make a buck on it? And so, but the Jews, 
didn't have that rule, so they became money lenders because legally they couldn't do anything else. They actually couldn't, they were not allowed to do anything else. Then they got, of course, uh, uh, insulted for doing the only thing they were legally allowed to do. So um, you gotta love humans, right? Yeah. So anyway, so those are the James. Yes. Maharaj, can you say that Krishna is giving, giving, giving all the time and also forgiving? That's clever. Yes, giving and forgiving, but sometimes the forgiving comes with a whack. I mean, you know, there is karma. And if you read the news, you can see that some people are really, you know, they're getting very heavy reactions because of what they did. And Krishna also takes from us, not because he needs it, but because parents need to teach their children not to be selfish. For example, when I was a little child, I had very good parents and, you know, you've all done this. Mother's birthday, your father takes you to get a gift, right? Your father's birthday, your mother takes you wide. And they didn't need it. I think for like seven years in a row, we went to Save On Drugstore and I bought my mother a little little thing of, you know, multicolored bath soap and a little gel. I got that's what I got every year because that was like my mother's gift. So it's not that they needed it, but it's the duty of parents to teach their children to reciprocate, not to be selfish, not to be narcissistic. That's the duty of parents. Because if you don't teach your children, if you spoil your children, then you ruin your children. And so Krishna is not going to ruin us, and therefore he says, offer back. Offer back so that you become a civilized human being and hopefully a devotee. So any other question? If not, I can tell, I mean, I can just, as, as an advanced Vaishnav, I can tell when the Vaishnavas are hungry. <laughs> yes, last question. You, you made the point that the, uh, the kings who was using brahmanas to parents up. Yes. Then you went into, into the next column and said, how they you went to I think it was Nahusha. I think it was Nahusha. Uh, I forgot exactly, but it, he took birth in a very low birth. You can look it up in the database. What's that? Snake. Okay, that's right. He became a snake. Python? Would you rather be a python? No. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that, that's it. You can look it up. But that, that's correct. You can't snake or python. So, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. And thanks to everyone who's watching on Facebook.